Hi, my name is Melanie B. Highland from Norman, Oklahoma, and I belong to the Tornado Alley chapter of Sisters or Siblings in Crime, a national organization dedicated to education for mystery writers and crime writers of all genders. The Tornado Alley chapter sponsors this podcast to support and promote local and regional writers, whether they are well-established or emerging. Our guest today, Susan Kogan from Norman, Oklahoma, author of more than a dozen books in various genres, mostly fiction, uh, is going to read from her OWFI award-winning Great Depression era novel, The Man Who Needed Killing, which was a finalist in Amazon.com's Breakthrough Novel Contest. So imagine all of the thousands and thousands of novels that uh, that she was in competition with. Susan also writes articles and blog posts, but she keeps circling back to mystery. You can find her work on Linktree slash Susan B. Kogan. Welcome, Susan. Hi, I'm glad to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. And since you're going to read from The Man Who Needed Killing, which is a great title, and everyone who I talk to always says that, wow, what a great title. <laughs> uh, could you tell us why you decided to write that particular novel? Well, someone had suggested that I write a regional novel that, that you know, that it would have a niche audience, you know, and be popular that way. I thought, okay, okay, okay. And um, so, you know, I'm from Oklahoma, and I've lived here since 1960, I think, is when we moved here. Yeah. And um, from California, from Southern California. I was originally from L.A., you know. Um, and, yeah, culture shock. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but I wanted to write a I wanted to write that, that I had written a book in a, set in the 30s before, so I had a considerable amount of research. I had watched contemporary movies, uh, read contemporary books. I even found an old book with the same title as mine and read that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I had already had this, so I was very fond of the 30s anyway. And... Uh, so I looked around, I started reading about Oklahoma in the 30s. It was a very interesting place. Um, a lot of a lot of things didn't get talked about. A lot of secret things happened, you know, and that's just gold for a writer, of course. Um, and it was very stressful. It was a national weather catastrophe. And uh, they didn't see it that way. But looking back, of course, that's what it was. And so digging into that and what it was like to live in and basically to have the world turn itself from pretty good to really hostile. Um, that was I, I really I was very attracted to that setting. Uh, but on the other hand, all of the characters are with a couple of exceptions are very low class farmers, which is what most people were in those days. It was still about 60% of the population lived on a farm. Uh, and those people weren't important. 
So they didn't make the papers and nobody did human interest stories about, or, you know, anything. Um, so I had to, I found Stud Turkle in his work. I think he, I'm pretty sure he, I should double check this. He wrote Hard Times. And uh, I think he wrote the Dirty Thirties, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure who wrote that. Uh, but those books really kind of, they did focus on ordinary people living ordinary lives, you know, in Oklahoma at the time. And that was wonderful to read. And then, of course, I had family memories, my own childhood memories. The 30s had not left Oklahoma by the 60s. <laughs> they were still here. Um you know, customs and mores and language and so on. Then I sort of soaked all that up as and let it dribble out as I wrote. Well, when I read this novel, I was really impressed with the detail about what people ate, what they drank, how they shopped, how they did housework, how they socialized. And also... Uh, I loved the language in this book. I loved the narr narrative language and the language of the characters. And so I think all that research, all that soaking up really uh, mm -hmm. paid off. And so could you give our listeners uh, a taste of that language and introduce and read a passage from that book? Yes, uh, I'd like to read... Um... The introduction, the prelude, which, you know, five years later, I, I heard that you should never have a prelude. Uh, so, you know, anyway, I'll read the prelude and a couple of pages of the first chapter. Um, Ozzie sat in the rattling boxcar, paring his toenails with a po buck pocket knife. He would occasionally rest from his work and look out at the desolate landscape. Dust choked everything, fine as paste face powder. It drifted everywhere like a deadly brown snow. Ozzie had watched mile after mile of corn stalks poking shriveled heads from the exhausted ground. Past scarecrows, scarecrow farmhouses, empty and staring, scoured by the wind. It was hot in the boxcar but he was used to heat and the artificial breeze generated by a train doing 40 miles an hour kept him comfortable enough. This country looked though looked pounded by the sun and lay under it like a corpse mummified and abandoned. Occasionally Ozzy would see people come out to watch the train go by a look of fear and desperate grief on their faces mixed. He imagined with a longing to be away to escape on the train with him. For Ozzie, the hoboing life was the only clean life for a decent man, and he felt sorry for them. He felt genuine compassion for the men entombed by a house and a dead patch of dirt buried in their graves by the dust. He gave no thought to the women. For him, women were furniture in the house, like the beds and the chairs, entrapments, snares, chains. Ozzie pulled out his harmonica, his only real possession other than his bindle and the clothes he stood up in, and played a sad song for the men chained in those dusty tombs. When he was so moved, he lowered the harmonica and sang words from his heart about the misfortune of men in the hard-baked earth. He had more than a hundred songs stored up in his head. He made up new ones when the songs of other men, 
didn't say what he needed them to say. Oh, I love that. And he's such <laughs> a wonderful character. Um, he becomes a kind of a kind of Greek chorus <laughs> with yes. his with his singing and uh, a, a kind of Woody Guthrie character a little mm -hmm. bit. And <laughs> mm -hmm. he's just he's quite wonderful commenting on and and giving that alien perspective that, you know, he isn't like everyone else and he sees things from a very different mm -hmm. view. Mm hmm. Oh, yes, I really enjoyed writing him. And uh, I mean, every book, consciously in every book, I put a Snoopy's Doghouse character. That's what I call them. <laughs> if you need somebody to speak French, they do. You know, <laughs> uh, if you need somebody to make a phone call, they can, you know, <laughs> and so on. It's like they if you need something, then, oh, yeah, they, they can do that. Uh, and I've over the years, I've noticed there's a lot of writers who do that. You know, have you need somebody to stir something up? There's that character is going to do it. <laughs> I know that you're returning to mystery writing that you write in a lot of other genres. And what what are you discovering? What is your path to uh, returning to building mysteries? Mm, good question. Um, well. I, I make sure that I'm all caught up on Midsummer Murders, uh, which is the iconic British television show. It's I think it's, it has about two or three different kinds of plots, and they are iconic plots, mostly stolen from Agatha Christie, uh, which is fine because <laughs> everybody else does too. Um, I do that. I, I analyze mysteries, and I think about that I try to think about them in different ways because when when you have a mystery, somebody died, you know, and uh, in this book, not to give too much away, but a nice person dies and a terrible person dies. And you have to be respectful of that through the whole story. I have read a few mysteries lately, and it, I hope it's not a trend, where you're on chapter 36 and you go, hey, guys, didn't somebody die in chapter one? <laughs> Shouldn't we give that a thought? You know, uh, and uh, no, the, the, the dead person is at the center of the of the thing. It's the heart of the whole thing and the puzzle. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about your writing process and how you deal with writer's block if you have writer's block? Oh, goodness. Everybody has writer's block. I have writer's block the size of King Tut, too. <laughs> um, but, okay, the two books, uh, one modern, Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art, and the other one is Julia Cameron, uh, The Artist's Way. And that's the one that I read 40 years ago that got me started that basically gave me permission to be a writer because I, you know, I was an imposter. I was pretending I was a dilettante, you know. Um, and, she, but, you know, her books give you permission. And they also, they also mentioned that important detail, which is write every day, you know, because uh, her thing is morning pages. You write three pages every day of just empty your brain, whatever, make lists. 
but fill three pages. And um, that really, that discipline really turned me around because I love it. You know, I always have loved it, you know, since I was like 12 and probably before that, you know, um, when I started reading long form stories, you know, Little Women, that sort of thing, I said, I want, and Joe and Little Women, and I was going, oh, you know, that's me. <laughs> um, in fact, one of my avatars somewhere is Joe from Little Women. <laughs> Um, where was I? <laughs> you may well, wonder. I think that I think that uh, Joe March was an uh, inspiration to a lot of women, and mm -hmm. uh, and it's not you know I, I people who've read the book it's it's not it's not sentimentalist it's a you know I think it's a wonderful book but it is about someone who takes charge of her life and does something different and follows mm -hmm. her passion. So um, it's just a message for all writers, not just women writers, I think. Yeah. So like Joe's attitude, it was very casual. Uh, I still, when I want to not be bothered, I say genius is boiling, go away. <laughs> she didn't say go away because she wouldn't be rude, but she said genius is boiling and her sisters knew what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> but that, <laughs> but uh, I liked that kind of being enmeshed in it. I admired that part of it and wanted to be that. Yeah. And so writing, um, when I talked to you earlier, uh, you see as a place for discovery. And yes. tell us about where writing takes you and, and how ideas form as, as you write. Well, I have no idea. Um, Terry Pratchett is a British author. Everyone should read him. Um, believed or said he believed that uh, ideas sleep down out of the universe constantly. They're, you're in a rain of ideas. And you just have to be either still enough for them to land on you or in listening and paying attention or you prepared for it. I mean, if you're three years old and you know, plonks constant, lands on you, it's going to just roll right off, you know. Uh, and if you're not listening and paying attention, ideas are just going to bounce away like rain. And so that's what I do sometimes. I sit and let it rain. And I usually do that by journaling when I'm letting it rain, you know, uh, just letting it be there. And sometimes just sitting there with no agenda, staring into space, just having the courage to sit there and do that without distraction, things just start, yet the rain starts landing and soaking in, <laughs> you know, is, yeah. It just, from nowhere, it just comes from nowhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a reminder to our listeners, I'm speaking today with novelist Susan Kogan, who lives in Norman, Oklahoma. Well, I know that you're writing something new. Uh, tell us about what you are currently working on. I am working on a cat lady mystery, a series of cat lady mysteries, I hope. Um, the character is loosely based on my own life, very loosely. Uh, 
I have to, I'm going to have to put a disclaimer like on every 10th page. This isn't really me, guys. Really, it's not. Uh, um, but she loves cats. Uh, somewhere in the book is going to be my standard joke, which is when I was young, two cats was plenty. Now that I'm older, it takes three. Uh, and but she accidentally falls into these cats. They are enormous. They're obviously Maine Coon mix. Uh, they're giant. One of them is black, and he looks like a small tiger, a uh, small panther. And uh, But the tabby can talk. He can communicate telepathically with our main character. And she believes that it might be real. She wants it so hard to be real. But she's had a stroke a few months ago. And it might be a symptom. <laughs> so she's going to have to confess to her doctor about that. So that's an underlying subplot under this sudden death overtime. I wanted to, and she'll also make the joke about sudden, being in sudden death over. Um, but that may be why she can hear the cat. You know, it's, it's activating a part of her brain. And that's why she can hear the cat. And so this cat, I mean, tons of mystery. He talks in military style, affirmative. We will, you know, a temporary quarters here, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, even I don't really know where that came from uh, yet. And, um, but everybody wants these cats and these cats want to escape. They have a mission they have to complete that's too classified, eyes only. And, uh, Meanwhile, this young woman who recently owned the cats was found dead in her house of no apparent cause at first. And at first they thought a drug overdose, and then they thought maybe, and then they found that she drowned. But she was lying in her kitchen floor when they found her. Uh, and uh, so there we go. We're off to the races. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that sounds that sounds like a, a really unique take, and um, and a good a good angle, a good concept for uh, for your character. Well, I, I know you told me <laughs> that social media for you was a kind of addiction. Yes, <laughs> yes, very and much so. Do you see some connection between social media and and writing? Oh, absolutely. Because for one thing, I've been active on social media since the late 90s. There used to be an email program called Pine. That will date it. I don't know when it died, but it was a long time ago. Uh, and even then, I, I what I quickly discovered is what you write does not always land the way you meant it. You know, you use an ordinary cliche that you use every day. And that other person don't, doesn't hear a little saying or cliche. They they hear you saying that to them, you know. Uh, and so I suddenly had to figure out how it landed. And I realized that's really important. You know, that's very important how people hear it. And I spent a lot of time rearranging words and letters and, yeah, you know, I mean, words and phrases and things that would be acceptable you know, trying to hear it from the other side that forced me to do that. And I've been doing that ever since, since however long ago that was, long time. Um, but also it's a text-based medium and I love to write. 
And I also love to argue. Pick a topic, no. take a side. <laughs> well, that is the place for it. But uh -huh. I, I don't yes. think that I had thought about how audience focused it needs to be whether you're yes. arguing or and so that makes that makes so much sense to hone that that awareness that you have on an immediate audience mm -hmm. yeah I did it like a yo mama joke one time and it was obviously a joke and the guy thought I was talking about his mother <laughs> you know uh and that was just like a couple of years ago I mean, I had not discovered that. Yeah, oh, yeah, be careful with jokes, you know, because if they if they're not accustomed to it, if it's not part of their culture, you know, because jokes are very culture centered, and uh, so, yeah, learning how the how it's going to land with the audience, and I I that informs my writing a lot, my fiction writing and my blog post and other article writing and stuff like that. Well, it should. And and yes. so I think that's a, a good lesson to learn. But I know you also read and you, you've mentioned mm -hmm. some of the books that uh, that you're looking at while we're <laughs> reading and because we're recording this uh, at home today. But um, what what kind of things are you reading right now? Do you have some particular things that that you would share with us that you're interested in at the moment? Oh, sure. Um, things I've read recently is the uh, Poirot reboot by a modern author who I can't remember her name. We should put it in the show notes or something uh, because they're very good and they're very Agatha Christie-like. Uh, and what we're reading right now is a modern author revisiting the character of Philip Marlowe and doing an excellent job of it. Uh, it's called The Second Murderer, something like that. And uh, it's wonderful. Uh, but we just finished reading. Um, my husband and I read, listen to audiobooks in the evening is how I read everything. Um, we just recently finished The Thursday Murder Club. And that was really hopeful because it's from the viewpoint of several elderly people who live in an elder, elder care community. And one of them used to be MI6. And things keep happening. <laughs> She's not really all that retired. <laughs> and uh, people drop dead, you know. And uh, and they, of course, band together and solve the crime. While being themselves, very much themselves, you know. Some are fussy and fidgety and you know, have to have everything just so, and some are just really outgoing and, you know, have a shady past and, you know, very nice elderly characters drawn beautifully without prejudice, basically. And I like that a lot. Or know. patronizing. <laughs> it's not patronizing, not at all. No, because there's no reason you wouldn't be just as good a shot when you're 80 as when you were 65, you know. It's automatic. It's automatic. It becomes like driving. Yeah. Well, I always ask seasoned writers like yourself, uh, what advice you have for emerging and beginning writers? What, what thoughts could you leave with us? Okay. Learn everything you can. If you can't afford college or junior college, 
haunt YouTube uh, because there are several excellent tutorial channels on YouTube. I follow two or three of them that talk to you through the how to build a novel, how to keep writing, how to, you know, how to live the writing life. I especially recommend Stephen Pressfield. Uh, he has a YouTube channel. He's an old fart, but he uh, he's written for Hollywood and like that. You know, he's he's a work been a working writer for 40 years. Um, and he's very good for writer's block. That was something I was going to talk about earlier. That he's really good for writer's block. And it's and it's an interesting take on it because he says there are people who are professionals and who are not. And if you are a professional, you follow these rules. And he has 26 rules. And the first one is the professional shows up. And for me, when I have writer's block, what that means is I take the notebook because I write everything longhand first and put it in my lap and stare at it <laughs> until blood forms on my forehead, you know, <laughs> or until time's up. And then I set it aside and go, go on with my day. But I showed up <laughs> uh, and do it every day. Absolutely do it every day. I journal every day. In a, and I don't consider that to be writing, but uh, I feel about three journals a year. 2020, it was five, but you know that was 2020. One of the one of the times the world did not end. Well, I think there are a lot of us uh, with that blood on our forehead. <laughs> yes, but, that's not, a, <laughs> not original, up. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, Susan, thank you so much for uh, for coming today. I appreciate it. Uh, today's interview with Susan Kogan is being recorded Tuesday, February 6, 2024 on Zoom and will be edited with the help of the Metropolitan Library System branch in Bethany, Oklahoma. It will be published Friday, February 16, 2024 on Buzzsprout, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. We done?